six days after a dramatic journey, a journey where Peter declared Jesus to be the Son of God, a journey where Jesus told of his upcoming suffering, death, and resurrection. After that journey, Jesus takes three disciples with him to the top of a mountain. You'll remember from Sunday school that mountaintop experiences within Israel were known to be where a person would encounter God. If you think back to the Hebrew Bible, you'll remember that Moses, after leading Israel to freedom through the Red Sea, ascended Mount Sinai, and when he descended, he had God's top ten in his hands. While on the mountain, Matthew tells us that Moses and the prophet Elisha appear, and Jesus, after a conversation with these two heroes of the Hebrew Bible, is transfigured. His face shines and his clothing becomes dazzling. And then the same voice that called down at the Jordan River calls out and says, this is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. You may not have realized it this morning when you woke up, made your coffee, and then put on your Sunday best and decided to come to church that you would be here for a significant turning point in the church's year. Our Christmas decorations are neatly packed and put away. The season of Epiphany ends today. If the season of Epiphany was a crescendo, gradually and more grandly exposing the glory of Jesus of Nazareth. Then today, with the transfiguration of Jesus, we have reached the fortissimo. Brian, did I get that right? Nailed it. As we prepare for this transition into the season of Lent, trading the bright lights of Epiphany for the shadows of Lent, the transfiguration of Jesus is the grand revelation of who Jesus is. Then now and forever. Peter, the rock upon which the church was built, he had a front row seat to this event. And he was so moved that he wanted to commemorate the occasion by building memorials or tents. Peter wanted to, to build dwelling places for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. These structures were to commemorate the revelation of the majesty of God in Jesus Christ. After all, Peter must have thought in his head that this moment could not and would not get more grand and more divine than Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, and then the voice from the heavens calling down, declaring Jesus to be the eternal begotten Son of God, the creator of the cosmos, the loquacious word made flesh. But Jesus tells the disciples, it's time to go. As they are descending the mountain, Jesus turns to the three disciples, to Peter, James, and John, to keep this story to themselves, telling no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Jesus tells these three disciples, do not tell anyone about what you have just seen until the thing I told you about 16 verses ago happens. According to the Synoptic Gospels, that's Mark, Matthew, and Luke, 
aside from the revelation of Jesus Christ, the transfiguration is the grandest event in Jesus' ministry. On this event, on the transfiguration, Reverend Fleming Rutledge, you might know her better as the Beyonce of the Episcopal Church, she writes that the transfiguration is the most unambiguous revelation of Jesus as Messiah prior to the prior to his resurrection. So in our story today, on the seventh day after their journeys, the disciples, well, well, three of them, see the glory of the Son of Man, the one who was with the Father on the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth days of creation. And now on this seventh day, they descend They were witnesses to the transfiguration, just as there were witnesses to Jesus calming the sea, just as there were witnesses to Jesus teaching on a hillside and feeding the multitudes or healing those possessed by demons. In his second letter, Peter, the one who wanted to build the tents on the mountain, wrote, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we have been eyewitnesses to his majesty, for he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice was conveyed to him by the majestic glory, saying, this is my son, my beloved, with whom I'm well pleased. And what you need to know about Peter's eyewitness account is that Peter's letters predate the Gospels by 10 years. Peter is corroborating a story that was then written years later. So what then are we to do? What's the task of the preacher this morning? What's the task of you, the congregation, with the knowledge of the full majesty of the Son of God revealed to all of creation? Well, we could take the approach that even after this mountaintop experience, Jesus and the disciples traveled down the mountain to continue his ministry. And that we should go and do likewise. We can have a mountaintop experience. We can go back down to the ground and we can go out and do good works in the world. I've preached that sermon. And many of you have graciously sat through that sermon, which fell short. It fell short because it failed to keep the glory of Jesus Christ in the sermon's focus. Or we could try to make sense of the transfiguration in a very Arlington way. We could bog ourselves down in details. We could split hairs. We could search for nuance that changes the story for us or them or for the world. We could try to find explanations that just are not there. But maybe there's a third way, a third way forward that will help us Hold the tension of the transfiguration as we prepare to enter the season of Lent. American theologian Robert Jensen wrote, the transfiguration is a promise and a foretaste of what it means to be made over in Christ's image. As Jesus was transfigured before his disciples, the church Yesterday, today, and tomorrow is transfigured. Transfigured by God's grace, being made new in Jesus Christ. 
Most of us move through our day. Given our best plans, we still react to distractions that continuously swirl around us. And these distractions, whether they be technology, media, politics, or the economy, they attempt to transform us from the outside in, in a hope of conforming each of us into their image of who they want us to be. An end user in an algorithm, a new customer, or a disciple to spread their agenda, and their agenda is more often than not contrary to the good news of Jesus Christ. The transfiguration of Christ is an invitation to us, the church, to live a transfigured life. The transfiguration of Christ is a sign that God is not content to leave us in our present state. Rather, God is transforming us, each of us, and all of us together into something greater. And that's where the beauty of being in a ministry like Mount Olivet and Walker Chapel and then coming together Because we come together in Christ's name for something greater, not for ourselves, not for individuals, but for the glory of God and for the furthering of Christ's mission in the world. And as we awaken to that glory, becoming people of God, the people that God is shaping us to be, we can then follow the example of Jesus Christ and begin to be bearers of grace, mercy, and compassion. And in that, our hearts are opened and our hearts are softened. There's a quote widely attributed to Christian mystic Howard Thurman. If you search for it on Google, you will see Howard Thurman's name there, but you will never find the book that it's attributed to. I looked all day Friday to find it. But this is how the quote goes. God's love is like a great furnace that can melt away our fears and doubts leaving behind only a pure heart and steadfast spirit. The transfiguration of Christ, God's shining glory and splendidness, that was not a one-off event. Every time God's word is proclaimed, whether from a pulpit or in a church basement, maybe it's at home, at story time, before you put the kids to bed, or while you're listening in the car on the way to work, Every time we gather around the baptismal font and we say a prayer and water washes over someone's face. Every time we gather around Christ's table of grace and we share a meal. And every time we act with compassion and mercy, we experience what John Wesley called the means of grace. And we are transfigured. As Jesus was glorified at the transfiguration and he set his sights on Jerusalem, We know that the heavy lifting has been done. Making his way to the cross, Jesus carried the weight of our guilt and sin, as well as the glory that can only belong to the second person of the Trinity. And as he exited the tomb, the weight of of our sin was left behind, so that his righteousness might be ours, and his righteousness is ours. And it is the righteousness of God revealed in Jesus Christ, Christ born, transfigured, crucified, resurrected, and ascended that transforms us, transfigures us from the inside out. So for you, sitting on an uncomfortable, 
wooden pew this morning or watching at home from your favorite chair. As we prepare to enter the season of Lent, as we trade the bright lights of Epiphany and we journey toward the shadow of the cross, we are blessed because we get to experience the light of the transfiguration as we journey toward the light of Christ's resurrection. We often talk about means of grace that John Wesley famously wrote and preached on. But we oft, what we often fail to say is that these means of grace, they reveal to us the person and the work of Jesus to each of us. Beholding his glory on a mountain, and then on a cross, and then in an empty tomb, all of this is done for us. It was done for you. And friends, those means of grace, that is ultimately what changes us, as the hymn says, from glory into glory. Amen.